So we've just concluded our interview uh, about Nigeria. And the whole time I was just thinking about when I'm traveling through Africa and predominantly East Africa, all the music that I hear, all the conversations that I have, everything is is about people recommending Nigeria. A lot of the a lot of the vibes around Africa come from Nigeria. You know, it's a hub for music. It's a hub for creativity and entrepreneurship and lots of cool things. And being the largest pop or most populous country in Africa, it makes sense. Um, but you know, it has its other sides to it, as we just learned. Yes, we did. Um, we spoke to a very cool BBC journalist who is the West Africa correspondent. Welcome to Been There, Seen That. I'm Soph. And I'm Nay. This is the podcast that streamlines the messy world of global conflicts and humanitarian crises. Told by people who have been there, seen them, or lived them. Our guest this week is someone we are now both major fans of. Mayani Jones is the BBC News West Africa correspondent. She has closely covered Nigerian politics, the activity of Boko Haram, including the infamous kidnappings of children and the rest of Nigerian society. Morning, guys. Good morning. Are you in Lagos? I am in Lagos, Nigeria. It's very humid and some sweaty. (laughs) You guys are in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Melbourne and Sydney. Whereabouts? Melbourne and Sydney. Nice. I've never been, I've never been to Asia, and I've never been to Australia, New Zealand. So that whole part oh, of the world. Oh, you gotta is come. Industry. Yes, you gotta. I come. would love to. Are you guys um, vaccinated? Yes. Yep. One step towards freedom. Are you? <laughs> Yay! Yeah. So I got um, some of the very few vaccinations that were available in Nigeria last year. Mm-hmm. I got two of them for some apparently journalists uh, qualify as essential workers. Mm. which is nice to know. Um, and then I got a booster in the UK when I was there in August visiting family. So, Oh, wow. That's good. Cool. So, so I'm triple been... vaccinated. <laughs> hey, you're doing well. <laughs> We're not at that, at that stage yet. <laughs> What's the yeah. vaccine rollout been like in Nigeria? Has it? You know, so Nigeria is depending on... Um, donations from um well not donations but on on vaccines that they're purchasing from the un from the covax initiative which is meant to ensure equitable distribution of vaccines for third world countries the problem they've had is that one of the main one of their main suppliers for covax was um the in the is it the serum institute of india it's a mm. ma- massive vaccine. It's, I think, the world's biggest um, vaccine manufacturer. Um, mm. And they're based in India. And obviously, when the crisis in India um, started, uh, there was a lot of controversy about the fact that one of the biggest manufacturers of vaccines in the world was sending vaccines elsewhere when they were so you know, needed in India. So they decided to stop exporting vaccines and that really negatively affected COVAX and, and Nigeria. So, so far, I think only 1% of the population here is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, wow. Nigeria has a very youthful population. Um, it, I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but the medium age is ridiculously young, like 25. Um, mm-hmm. So it kind of seems to have born the pandemic well they had there was a little spike in January mostly affected middle class people who travel 
Um, most people work outdoors, um, even if they're in cities, you know, they're hawking, they're working in the market, they're working in a workshop. I'm not sure why COVID hasn't kind of exploded in the way that people expected it to in Africa and in Nigeria, but mm. uh, we've been fine, touch wood. You didn't have lockdowns and everything or were they just They did short? one lockdown yeah. in March of 2020 when the pandemic first happened. Yeah. I think it lasted a month. Um, I wasn't here, I was on maternity leave at the time in the UK because um, that's where most of my family is based. Um, but it had a devastating effect on the economy here. Um, and so they have been very reluctant to install another lockdown um, and they've just, you know, powered through. Um, mm. Lots of people, there's no um, social security blankets here. Uh, no benefit system, no housing allowances, uh, nothing. So if if there's a lockdown and people can't, and a lot of people kind of live hand to mouth on a day-to-day basis. So once everything was shut down, lots of people found themselves with, with no way of making a living or even buying food. You had a few private companies that got together to raise money um, to buy food for the most needy. Um, Unfortunately, after the NSAR's protests, when lots of cities around Nigeria were being looted, they found warehouses full of those donation, donated food being stored. There was already a lot of anger after NSAR's and people didn't really understand why they would be hoarding, why politicians, why the authorities would be hoarding this disdonated food. And it led to lots of allegations of corruption, during elections here, politicians will distribute food um, to potential voters as a way of kind of inciting them to vote for them. So people thought that they might be using these COVID donations to try and get um, more voters to vote for them during elections. So wow. there was a lot of frustration of that, a lot of anger, these, these crazy viral videos, um, particularly the north of Nigeria, where, where the population is poorest, showing thousands of people flooding towards these warehouses as soon as they heard that there was free food available. And I think for a lot of Nigerians, it illustrated just how hungry a lot of Nigerians were in the wake of the lockdown and the pandemic, and also how kind of angry they were at the, at, at, at the state of the country and the corruption here that, was, that meant that something that should have been available to, those, to society's most needy was being hoarded in these warehouses for purposes that, that were not clear. Wow. Mm. And how's the work of aid organisations in places like that, in areas that are struggling? So um, in the northeast, particularly where Boko Haram has been active for 12 years and you have millions of displaced people, aid, aid agencies, including the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, the UN, um, have been active you know, for years trying to help local communities um, to survive in any way that they can. The, the unfortunate um, side effects of the Boko Haram insurgency is that you've had millions of dis displaced people in the Northeast. A lot of them used to be farmers and they can now no longer farm their land They're in the capital of Bono State, Maiduguri, in refugee camps and they need food. So they are providing basic services like food, building these temporary camps, providing healthcare, but they are also along with lots of other actors in Nigerian society come under fire from the government. Sometimes they've worked closely with journalists to inform them in terms of a lot of the Northeast, a lot of Borno state, which is the, the state that's worse affected by the Boko Haram insurgency is not accessible to journalists or to researchers and to outsiders because it's so insecure. 
So um, NGOs who often have permission to go in those areas to help out people have been working with journalists to, to tell them what they see. And the government um, has come out against that and, and, and accused them of being spies and, and of um, harming the security of the country. So they have to be really careful how they move now if they want to keep on operating and if they want to keep helping the people. And also, you know, there, there, there are security crises all over the world, as you well know, doing this podcast. So resources have been really stretched. And I, and I think because Nigeria isn't on the global news agenda as much as, you know, it was, say, during the kidnapping of the Chibok girls, or even when Boko Haram first was kind of at the peak of its activities, um, I think a lot of donated money doesn't end up here. You know, it's relatively, it's Africa's wealthiest um, country, it's its biggest economy. So I think if donors are looking, you know, whether to give money to Yemen or Nigeria, I think Nigeria doesn't seem like a country that needs it that much, although it does. Mm, yeah, mm. that's hard. That's, that's true. It kind of has dropped off the news agenda a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of news, in the past 24 hours, you posted about some news on your Instagram, um, the death of the leader of the West Africa branch of Islamic State. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So basically, for the past, since early September, we have heard rumours that um, Abu Musab al-Banawi, who heads a group called ISWAP, which is the Islamic State West Africa province, had been killed. He's a very elusive figure. We barely know what he looks like. Uh, His voice hasn't been heard very much. He's believed to be the son of the founder um, of Boko Haram, uh, Mohammed Yusuf. And he became the leader of ISWAP because in 2015, Boko Haram pledged allegiance to the so-called Islamic State. Um, And in 2016, uh, IS Central said that instead of um, the the man who had led Boko Haram for the last 10 years, Abu Bakar Shekau, instead of him leading uh, Boko Haram, they wanted uh, Abu Musab al-Banawi to head Boko Haram. <laughs> Abu Bakar Shekau is a flamboyant character. I think if most people think about Boko Haram, they've seen videos of him. He, he you know, had a beard. He used to, to give these long rants, particularly during the kidnapping of the Chibok girls. His face became really famous around the world. And he's, a, he's rumored to be a strong, to have been a strong personality. So at the time he objected to that, he said he was still going to be the leader of Boko Haram. And that led to a split. Boko Haram split in two with those who were, um, still faithful, faithful to Abu Bakr Shikau, staying with Boko Haram and others who wanted to be affiliated with IS, um, moving to Abu Musab al-Banawi. And the way that ISWAP distinguished itself from Boko Haram was um, to stop using things like child suicide bombers that Boko Haram had increasingly been using at the time. Um, they reduced targets on civilians, most of whom were Muslims in northeastern Nigeria. You know, they said that that wasn't carrying out jihad as they saw it. They decided to focus instead on targeting members of the military and, and members of the small Christian minority that lives in northern Nigeria. Um, and the two factions have been kind of at loggerheads 
loggerheads ever since. Uh, in July, we found out that Abu Bakr al had been killed. You know, IS confirmed that he had detonated a suicide vest after he was ambushed by members of ISWAP. And that was huge news. He's the best known face of jihadism in West Africa. Um, since then, the army has said that thousands of Boko Haram fighters have handed themselves over to them. And they are really seeing the death of Shikau as a victory. So when we heard in early September that Abu Musabma Banawi might have also died, the second major jihadi leader to die in the region, uh, it, it seemed kind of incredible. It's been very tough to verify. A lot of the information is coming from the Lake Chad area in the Northeast. Communications there is poor. It's an enclave of IS because it's so remote. And so every time we would speak to a source, very often they'd give us contradictory information and we were never able to corroborate everything that, that was said. Um, so it was a surprise when during a press conference um, yesterday, the head of the military here, the head of the defense ministry was asked by an AFP journalist if he had any evidence that Abu Musab al-Banawi was dead. And he said, yes, he didn't give any details. He just said, he's dead. Uh, he's not going to be undead. Um, didn't explain when he died, where he died, etc. So we still have lots of questions and we and we definitely don't have any concrete evidence that he's died. It's just the first time that the military has commented on it. We wanted to move a little bit more now onto kind of like the everyday life in Nigeria at the moment. So Nigeria is has the biggest population in Africa um, with a recorded population of over 206 million people. Uh, it's the center of music and entrepreneurship, but it, do, it does have its issues, as we've touched on, with at least 7.1 million people in need of urgent assistance. So what is this kind of assistance? What does this kind of assistance look like? And what is the everyday like for Nigerians at the moment? Yeah, the, the situation of many Nigerians has been worsened, really, by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, prior to the pandemic, there had already been um, economic problems. Uh, Nigeria is Africa's biggest exporter of petrol. Um, and the fall in the price of oil uh, caused by, you know, external global factors that we don't need to go into had had a really detrimental uh, effect on the country's economy. Um, but COVID-19, you know, just turbocharged that because suddenly nobody was traveling around the world. Um, the price of fuel plummeted completely. Um, international publications were covering how companies were, oil companies were paying people to store oil for them. And so uh, a, a bad financial situation in Nigeria was made even worse because suddenly its biggest import was a lot less valuable than it once was. Um, Nigeria has struggled for a long time with diversifying its economy. President Buhari's administration has said that it's invested massively in agriculture to try and, and make the country less reliant on oil. The reality is a lot of farming in Nigeria is still majoritarily subsistence farming. So it's not enough. It's not on a scale that's large enough to feed its absolutely humongous population, which is estimated to be around 200 million people. Um, unemployment is a huge problem. The majority of the population here is young and youth unemployment has just skyrocketed during the pandemic. So 
for many Nigerians, the last year and a half has been one of struggle and difficulty. The price of food has escalated. The pandemic has also come with the government closing its borders to neighboring countries um, like Benin Republic that exported a lot of kind of fresh fruit and vegetables to Nigeria. So suddenly the price of food has, has skyrocketed because importing food, which the country still has to do a lot of, it has become more expensive. People are not making as much money. Um, the, the value of the Naira um, has plummeted. So people's Naira is worth a lot less. So if they want to import things, they're having to, to use more Naira to import those things. So even, um, you know, people who were traditionally comfortable, middle class, are suddenly finding themselves in a situation where they can't afford the things that they used to be able to afford. Uh, food inflation is the highest that it's been in at least 15 years. So from the middle classes right through to you know, uh, the poorest in society, everybody is really struggling uh, to make ends meet. And I think that that's been compounded by the fact that the government is trying to artificially boost the value of the Naira by restricting how much foreign currency is in the country that hasn't helped things. It's just kind of boosted the price of foreign currency on the black market. Instead of tackling that issue, they recently closed down a website that was an aggregator of kind of all the black market rates um, called Aboki FX and where people who wanted to exchange money on the black market, they could go on this platform and say, okay, well, this is the average. This is how much people are exchanging pounds or dollars at the moment that is no longer available. And so the, the government keeps doing things like this that are restricting people's um, access to free information. Um, they banned Twitter here. Um, earlier in the summer, um, in June, they banned Twitter because they said that Twitter was endangering the country's security. Uh, they didn't explain how. Um, and so access to information has become more difficult for uh, a lot of Nigerians at the same time as so many of them are, are, are suffering um, economic hardship. And I think one last thing that I'll mention is a more recent and worrying development there's been a lot of kidnapping and banded, what they call banditry here. So that's armed criminal gangs that um, target schools, target civilians, target people traveling. They kidnap them for ransom. And that's been happening in the northwest of the country. So on the opposite end of the north to where Boko Haram is active. It's been a huge problem for the government, a huge embarrassment. And in order to tackle it, uh, last month, they announced that they would be closing down telecommunications in that whole part of the country. So that means that millions of people now in northwestern Nigeria no longer have access to a telephone line, a mobile telephone line. If their child is sick in the middle of the night, they can't call for help. If they get, if their village gets targeted by kidnappers, they can't call for help. So the government's rationale is that they're doing this to stop the kidnappers from communicating with one another, but it's it's predominantly affecting ordinary Nigerians. And are the kidnappings being perpetrated predominantly by, or is it, or do they have another effect on kind of the everyday life of Nigerians? Yeah, so I think when people think of kidnappings in Nigeria, they think of Boko Haram because of the famous kidnapping of the Chippewa girls in 2014. More than 200 schoolgirls were taken in the middle of the night um, by members of Boko Haram. Um, they were kept in captivity, uh, some of them for months, others for years. Uh, uh, more than 100 of the girls still remain um, unfound. And it got a lot of international um, attention. Michelle Obama and other celebrities kind of... Um, 
started using the hashtag bring back our girls. And, and that was a major news story um, about Nigeria. I think the latest wave of kidnappings we've seen this year has happened, like I said, in the Northwest. So far away from Boko Haram's sphere of influence in the Northeast. And there it's been criminal gangs that are trying to make money from these kidnaps. They seem to have been inspired by Boko Haram because they realize with the kidnapping of the Chibok girls that taking kids is emotional. It gets people riled up. It puts pressure on the government to pay a ransom. And so in December of 2020, we saw the first mass kidnapping um, of children that had been committed since uh, by non Boko Haram actors. Um, and uh, more than 300 schoolboys were taken in a town called Kankara. I traveled myself up to the state of Katsina where it happened to cover the story. Um, and the parents were incredibly distraught within six days, the boys had been released, you know, an emotional video of them uh, uh, hostage video of them was released. Worryingly, even though this was happening in the Northwest, this criminal group claimed that they were affiliated to Boko Haram in the Northeast to complicate matters. We never got any concrete evidence that those two groups were actually, you know, linked in any other way other than saying that they're linked. I think we have to remember that Boko Haram and jihadism in general, it's a strong not to be flippant about it, but it's a strong brand. If I'm a kidnapper and I want to make myself look super scary or super powerful, it's good to say that I'm affiliated with Boko Haram or with IS because then the government will be scared. There is some indication that Boko Haram's sphere of influence might be spreading out of the Northeast into the Northwest, but you know we haven't seen the scale of kind of suicide bombings and attacks that we've seen in the Northeast in other parts of the country, but they, they certainly seem to be spreading. But I think it's important for an audience that isn't familiar with Nigerian news to emphasize that these attacks are predominantly not being carried out for ideological reasons. Boko Haram is opposed to Western education. That's its modus operandi. And even though these kidnappers in the Northwest are targeting schools, they're doing it for monetary reasons rather than because they, they believe that Western education is corrupting. They just target kids and university students because they feel like they'll get more money for them. So what exactly is Boko Haram's aim? Like, what do they aim to achieve in Nigeria through these kidnappings? And, and like, can you expand a bit more on what their ideology is? Because, you know, people, especially here, are familiar with groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda. Um, but what differentiates Boko Haram from these groups? Yeah. Boko Haram was formed in, in 1999 by a man called Mohammed Yusuf in the town of, in the city of Maiduguri in the northeast of Nigeria. It's the capital of the state of Borno. And at the time, you know, it, it was just a small operation. Um, many uh, young men uh, in the area were frustrated with the perceived corruption of the Nigerian government. Um, they were frustrated with um, what they saw as an unequal, unequal distribution of resources, particularly to the north of Nigeria. Um, so just to explain to, to anybody who's not familiar with Nigeria, Roughly speaking, the country is divided in two, right? You have the south of the country where most of the oil is based and the majority of the population is Christian. Um, the vegetation tends to be kind of greener, more verdant, more forests. And in, and, um, in the southwest where the oil is kind of, um, in the southeast, sorry, where the oil is, you know, lots of kind of swampy, um, uh, swampy topography. 
In the north of the country, the majority of the population is Muslim. It has the strongest influence from kind of Arabic countries. It's predominantly Muslim. And the, even the weather um, is, is different. It's drier, it's more arid. You have kind of more desert-like fortification. So traditionally, yeah, the money's come from the oil in the south. Um, and uh, many in the north have felt that that money hasn't been equally distributed to them. The south does tend to be wealthier than the north of the country. You have greatest levels of illiteracy and greatest levels of um, poverty in the north of the country. And so when Boko Haram was created, there was this idea that if they could um, recreate some of the uh, Islamic caliphates that, that one existed in the north of the country that were ruled by Sharia law that um, were separate from the secular government of Nigeria, they could ensure um, uh, a better society for Nigerians in the north. The organization, um, you know, grew and, and became increasingly radicalized. It started targeting um, civilians, it targeted uh, a UN compound um, in, a, in the capital Abuja, um, and it really came to the to the forefront uh, with the kidnapping of the Chibok girls in 2014. Um, recent reports by journalists um, from the Wall Street Journal have uh, suggested that actually the kidnapping of the Chippewa girls was an accident, that um, Boko Haram came to that school because they were looking for tools, materials, um, the group was getting bigger, they needed housing, and they'd heard that there was uh, some sort of brick-making machine in the school. And as they went in, they came across this, this group of schoolgirls who were spending the night there because they had exams to take the following day. And kind of spur of the moment, decided uh, to take the girls with them, and the rest is history. Uh, it really kind of made um, their name, it turned them from an organization that was known regionally to one that was known globally. Um, and I think encourage them to carry out other similar kidnappings. So um, in 2018, when I moved to Nigeria for the first time, uh, they, they had kidnapped uh, 100 schoolgirls from another town in the Northeast called Dapshi. Uh, but those girls were released very rapidly, relatively rapidly compared to the Chibok girls. Within a month, uh, they were released. So it seemed that by then, Boko Haram had discovered a formula that worked for them. I think it's it's worth mentioning that before the Chibok girls, they had kidnapped children before, but they had mostly been boys. And they had not kind of the information had not hit the news in the same way. I think the fact that they kidnapped young girls in the north where women have very little access to education anyway. So these were young girls that were trying to get an education really got the ear of uh, women's rights activists and, and kind of human rights activists in the capital Abuja. And they were instrumental in kind of getting uh, the world's attention to this. Uh, and it also came at a time when, you know, the conversation about which lives matter in the news agenda was really starting to pick up on social media. It was like, why is it that some crises that happen in the West get so much global coverage and others that happen in, in, in Africa don't? Um, and so Bring Back Our Girls really played into that and, and got people talking about, you know, which lives matter? Why aren't we reporting? Where else in the world could more than 200 kids go missing and you wouldn't report it? So that, that's really what made Boko Haram's name and played into and got their ideology known. And like I said, their ideology is primarily Western education is a bad thing and they, they don't want people in the North to receive a secular Western education.
And some of the children that you've mentioned, they have been released or they've sort of survived out of that. I believe some are still missing. From the stories that you've heard, can you tell us a little bit about the experiences that people have talked about, um, you know, having been kidnapped by Boko Haram? Yeah, over the years, the BBC's interviewed quite a few of the Chibok girls um, and other people who were who have been kept in Boko Haram detention. Um, I uh, spoke to one of the girls myself, I think it was last year, it would have been in, in February of 2020. And um, I think for, for a lot of them, the experience was incredibly distressing. Um, in the case of the Chibok girls, because they were women, uh, many of the fighters uh, wanted to marry them. They were asked by the leader of Boko Haram, Abu Bakr Shakal, to marry some of the fighters. Um, and they felt that it's because they wanted, they knew that once they were married into the group, it would be very difficult for them to leave. Um, so they were forced into marriage. They lived in, in very poor conditions, um, in camps that were outdoors with very little sanitation. You can imagine teenage girls um, you know, are having things like periods and once a month, there was nowhere to kind of keep clean, no way to find sanitary products. They kind of had to make makeshift uh, sanitary pads out of whatever they could find. Um, they were forced to cook for the fighters um, we, and had very little resources to do that. There was very little food in the camp, depending on kind of the fortunes of the group. Um, sometimes access to food be, would be used as punishment. So any girl that was refusing to get married would be given less food and, and the girls that agreed to get married would receive a lot more food. Um, or sometimes some of the rebellious girls would be given lots of food to try and encourage them, try and convince them, keep them sweet, tell them, come on, if you marry one of us, you can have access to, to a lot of this. So there was a lot of kind of um, physical and, and mental manipulation. Um, on the part of, of members of Boko Haram towards their captives. And the conditions were often, you know, uh, incredibly difficult. Most of the Chibok girls were Christians. So they, they described holidays like Christmas passing by and thinking about their families and how much they missed them. Interestingly enough, one of them managed to keep a diary of her time in captivity. Uh, and she wrote letters to her parents um, on Christmas Day, telling them how much she missed them and how much she, she was longing to be reunited with them. So it, it was an incredibly difficult experience for the Chibok girls particularly, but also for you know the thousands of other people that have been taken by Boko Haram. The Chibok girls were their most famous captives and they had special status, but there were loads of other kind of rural people in the Northeast that were also abducted by the group. And what is it that they want? Is it political power? Is it just to eliminate any Western influence in the country? Yeah, what, what are they after? Yeah, I think they want, you know, a separate autonomous caliphate in, in the north of Nigeria that will be regulated under Sharia law and where, you know, the only education you can receive is, is uh, an Islamic one. If we turn to the government, um, you mentioned President Buhari, the current president. Um, there seems to be a sort of centralization of power around him, an increasing sort of almost authoritarian uh, sort of look to him. Um, what is going on with the government? And, and also, can you explain the structure of the government in Nigeria? Because under the constitution, 
technically the executive and the legislator and the judiciary should be separate, but it sort of seems like there's a relationship going on there that probably shouldn't be. Can you explain what's going on there a little bit? Yeah, so President Muhammadu Buhari, the current president of Nigeria, was first elected um, back in 2015. And um, his election at the time was seen as a major victory for Nigeria. Nigeria was uh, a dictatorship for, you know, more than three decades. Uh, in 1999, you had the first kind of democratic elections since independence. And um, President Buhari's election in 2015 was the first time that uh, one party had democratically handed over power to another party and the process had been kind of peaceful. So even though he is was a former military head of state, um, so he headed the country between 1983 and 1985 after taking power in the coup, people kind of saw his election as a victory for democracy. And also it, he, he came at a time when, you know, the, the kidnapping of the Chibok girls had happened, um, happened the year before, and people were really looking for somebody who was focused on security. People were frustrated by the perceived corruption of um, the administration of his predecessor, good luck, Jonathan. And so uh, they, even though, you know, some people rang alarm bells about the fact that when he was a military head of state, there had been a crackdown on freedom of speech and on, on freedoms of journalists. People thought, okay, well, maybe he's changed in his old age and, and let's give it a go. Um, he was re-elected in 2019, um, but, you know, ever since his election, I think it's fair to say a lot of Nigerians have been disappointed by his performance. First and foremost, he, you know, he, he rode in on a security ticket. He said that because he was a, a military man, he could ensure security here in Nigeria and the security of Nigerians. But insecurity has, is still a massive problem and some would argue has become worse with kidnapping spreading from the northeast of the country with Boko Haram to the northwest where people are kidnapping for ransom. Um, and we're also seeing lots of communal clashes um, in different parts of the country namely uh, in the middle of the country in central Nigeria, uh, a stretch of, of um, states that are called the middle belt of the country. You've had their centuries old kind of clashes between um, uh, semi-nomadic uh, herding communities and some of the more settled farmers that have been there that you know, they fight over resources, over water, over land. And sometimes those fights become violent. You know, those um, fled up again during President Buhari's time in power. Uh, the economy has been doing very poorly. Um, and many people have been disappointed with uh, the way he has um, run the country. I think a lot of that dissatisfaction came to the fore during the anti-police brutality protests of, of October 2020, uh, which were dubbed the NSARS protest. SARS is an infamous police unit here in Nigeria that was known for um, carrying out lots of human rights abuses, uh, lots of violence, you know, detaining, detaining people illegally, torturing them, um, trying to get money from them. And they targeted young Nigerians, particularly young Nigerians who work in the tech sector, because they believe that a lot of them might be involved in um, internet scams, internet crimes. Um, but also just because, you know, they, they would target young people who had different hair, or who carried a laptop because they were like, you look like a cyber criminal. So we're gonna arrest you and we're gonna extort you for money. And so thousands of young Nigerians took to the street of the city in October of last year to, to demand that this unit be disbanded. 
And it all ended rather brutally on the 20th of October 2020, when um, the epicenter of the protest, which was, uh, which took place at a toll gate, just 10 minutes from where I am now in Lagos, called the Lekki toll gate. It was one of the biggest sources of revenue for Lagos state governments, and it was virtually at a standstill for two weeks as young people were there day and night saying that they wouldn't leave until their demands were met. And they didn't just want SARS to be disbanded, they wanted greater accountability in the police. They wanted a fair remuneration for policemen because they believed the reason they were trying to extort people is because they're poorly paid. You know, they wanted, you know, they had a list of five demands. They wanted justice for victims of historical crimes of SARS. And they said they wouldn't leave the Lekki Toll Gate until they got those demands. Well, on the 20th of October, members of the armed forces uh, stormed the toll gate and, um, as far as we know, shot at protesters. Now, the military have always denied that. Initially, they said they came with blanks. Uh, then they admitted that they had come with real bullets, but that they shot in the air just to disperse the crowd. They didn't kill anyone. A CNN investigation, um, you know, showed video, um, user-generated video, social media video uh, that was sent to them that shows soldiers shooting at the crowd. It's been very hard to find victims, get victims to come forward. And many of them are too scared to speak. They're worried about repercussions. We ourselves, the BBC, did a documentary where we followed a young woman who was looking for her brother who'd gone to the protest and hadn't been able to find them um, for over a month uh, since the shooting. She'd gone to every prison in Lagos. She'd asked anybody she'd known. She'd even tried to go directly to the army to see if they could help, but had had no success. And the shooting at the Lekki Toll Gate, I think for many Nigerians, particularly young Nigerians, symbolised all of the things that they worried about when it came to President Buhari and his past as a military dictator. Um, the brutality, the silencing of dissent, um, the silencing of civil society, and the use of the armed forces and the judiciary that are supposed to be independent, the use of them to uphold state power. There was um, a semi-judicial um, uh, process that was created as a result of the NSAS protests. So these, these things called judicial panels of inquiry were set up all over the country. And they were panels made up of a mix of members of civil society, activists, um, and they were supposed to hear testimony from victims of SARS crimes and, and try and give them some sort of restitution. Often that was monetary. Um, they would get them some money um, for injuries that they got from SARS. But the, the process has been criticized by both NSARS activists and uh, rights groups like Amnesty International that say a lot of the panels were um, not particularly transparent in their findings. They didn't share their findings with the public. Some of the panels uh, stopped hearing cases in the middle of the process um, and kind of we don't know when they're going to start hearing them again. Um, some of the panels have had uh, young NSARS activists drop out because they felt targeted, their accounts were frozen, even as they were taking part in this process that was supposed to get justice for victims. Uh, their accounts were frozen or they were stopped from traveling. So there's been a lot of frustration with this process and also with the fact that it's not the courts that are doing it, it's these, these panels that many young Nigerians see as illegitimate because they're like, what they want is they want police officers who do something bad to someone, who detain someone illegally, who torture someone, who take money from someone. They want these police officers to face justice. They want them to go to jail or they want them to lose their jobs. And that unfortunately has not happened as a result of this, this whole process.
Elaborating a bit more on the NSARS protest. So the NSARS hashtag went global uh, while the protests was, were happening and the protesters used apps like Twitter and social media to spread information. As you mentioned previously, the government responded by banning Twitter. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on this crackdown on technology and the role of Twitter and social media platforms in Nigeria? Yeah, so the NSALS movement predominantly started on Twitter. So 2020 wasn't the first time that the, the hashtag NSALS started trending. It had, you know, trended before in, in 2017 and in 2018. Uh, often what would happen is a viral video would be released of SARS officers committing um, a crime or abusing a member of the public, and that would galvanize um, other young Nigerians to come forward with their stories, to share more evidence of abuses by SARS and call for the unit to be disbanded. I think the difference with previous times when NSARS had trended on Twitter and 2020 is that in 2020, it left social media and actually moved onto the streets. In early October of 2020, a viral video was released, actually two viral videos in quick succession. So people think this kind of dispute as to which one started this latest wave of SARS. But the one that's believed to, to have potentially started thing is a, is a video that showed two young men being dragged by SARS officers outside of a hotel in the middle of the night, and one of them was shot. There's also another video that's attributed as starting the NSALS movement of 2020, which is a young man in the Delta in the southeast of the country who is dragged by um, SARS police officers out of his car. They shoot him in broad daylight in the middle of um, the road, leave his body in a ditch, and then drive off with his um, his car, which is a, you know, quite a nice car. And um, People got very angry uh, when they saw those videos and they, they were like, you know, enough is enough. And I think when you speak to young Nigerians, it's hard to find a young Nigerian who hasn't either personally been uh, detained by SARS or had some sort of encounter with SARS, either they were stopped in the middle of the night and shock, shook down for money. Or, or you know, it, it really ranges from something as small as being asked for money to being detained physically and sexually abused for days, not being allowed to speak to family or lawyers or relatives, to disappearing, dying in police custody. The stories um, that they told were really horrific and anger really built. Some people believe that it's because it was a perfect storm of a lot of young people being at home because of the pandemic, still working from home in October of 2020, and therefore having more free time to show up at protest sites and to organize themselves. Some people believe that, you know, it's because this time there were some specific actors on social media that were able to do tangible things like raise money for the protests. So there's a group called Feminist Coalition made up of young Nigerian women, most of them incredibly professionally successful who work in tech themselves. And they were able to raise lots of money. They were well connected. They knew lots of Nigerians, both in the wealthy Nigerians in the country and in the diaspora. And they trusted them, right? So when they wanted to donate to the NSAS movement, and feminist coalition said they were raising money for it they'd send money to their account when their account got frozen by the central bank for illegal activities they were able to raise bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies um, for the protest and they were very transparent in the way that they used the money uh, publishing kind of daily charts of how they were using it using the money to do things like 
provide food and water and drinks for the protesters at various sites, providing legal aid. A, a group of lawyers came together, uh, volunteered to every time a young person would be arrested, um, they would call us a line and they would quickly dispatch lawyers to whatever police station they'd been detained to release them. Um, they used the money to pay for ambulances to come to protest sites, to cut off anybody who was injured, to pay for security in case anybody tried to disrupt the protest. So it was a level of organization that had not been seen in a generation. And uh, that's what really made those ensigns protest. But because they started on Twitter and because they were endorsed by the founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, who tweeted, um, you know, hashtag ensigns and the Nigerian flag, um, because Nigeria has this vibrant tech ecosystem that has, has got the ear of people like Jack Dorsey, um, who's visited Nigeria himself personally. Um, because Twitter was such an instrumental tool in terms of getting the word out, getting attention out, at the beginning of the protest, they weren't being covered much by the media. And young activists just kind of like, I describe it often as like a, a Twitter swarm. You know, if you were a journalist or a media house, your handle would get swarmed by this hashtag NSARS. Why aren't you paying attention to this? You should be covering this. Uh, and it was such a kind of organized digital strategy that it got the attention of, of global media and, and global players. And so because it was such a, a force, it was amplified by Twitter. I think the government had already had its eye on social media for a long time. They'd been unhappy with the fact that so many young people were able to get attention, the, the world's attention to their problems by using social media. I think the NSARS protest was the kind of straw that broke the camel's back as far as the government was concerned. And um, uh, they, they'd been talking about introducing a social media bill to control how, what, and what people said on social media and how they said it. And it's not surprising then less than a year after the NSAS protest, the government decided to ban Twitter. Now, the, the, the incidents that made it happen had almost nothing to do with NSAS. There was a, a separatist movement in the southeast of the country calling for a separate state. They had been using inflammatory, sending inflammatory messages on Twitter for ages. President Buhari responded saying, you know, we're gonna treat them in a way that they understand. It's a part of the country where historically, you know, there was a, a civil war um, in the late sixties there um, when millions of people were starved to death um, by the Nigerian authorities at the time in order to to stop their demands for secession. So there'd already been acrimony historically between the Nigerian government and the Southeast of the country. And so when President Buhari said, we'll treat them in a way that they understand, many people saw them. So it's as a veiled reference to the violence committed against um, the, the activists that, that call for secession of this area in the Southeast called Biafra. And so they said, you know, the President, the President Buhari was threatening to carry out similar amounts of violence on them again. Lots of them complained to Twitter and Twitter said that indeed President Buhari's tweet breached its, um, its, its rules and condition. Now it's fair to say that uh, members of, um, you know, IPOP, which is the group that is asking for secession in the Southeast, had also used very inflammatory comments saying that, you know, police stations and, and, and anybody associated with the Nigerian state should be targeted and violated. So Nigerian government's point, which is, you know, a fair one, was that if their tweet is deleted, those tweets should have been deleted too. And Twitter did delete a, a tweet by the founder of IPOP, Namdi Kanu, 
later, but it, it felt like they were being partisan and the Nigerian government used that as an excuse to ban Twitter. Uh, that was in June, we're now in October. Twitter is still banned. If you want to access it in Nigeria right now, you have to turn on your VPN. Um, virtual private networks that allow you, that you know, trick the internet into thinking that you're somewhere else. And that's the only way you can access Twitter. Governments promised several times that they would lift the ban on Twitter, but it still hasn't happened. And what's the response from the public been on that ban? Initially, when the ban was announced, myself included, a lot of Nigerians didn't take it very seriously. They thought, what can these old men do? You know, they can't stop us from tweeting. It's ridiculous. They don't even know how to use, you know, the internet. And there were jokes. They were like, oh, maybe by ban, they mean like, you know, maybe they're not serious. Maybe they don't know what they're talking about. And then the next day, I remember they, they announced it on a Friday and the next day was a Saturday. And, um, you know, a couple, I'm on a WhatsApp group of a, a couple of other foreign journalists and they kind of like, were like, guys, can you access Twitter? What's going on? I'm kind of half asleep. I like try to access Twitter. Uh, and I couldn't, at the time, it wasn't a full block yet, right? So I couldn't access it on my 3G, but I was like, I can access it on my Wi-Fi. It's all good. And then by the end of the day, you could access it on Wi-Fi and on 3G. And I think a lot of people were shocked. They were just couldn't believe that the, these quote-unquote old men were able to figure out how to block uh, uh, Twitter. And then... You know, there was condemnation from foreign embassies, the Brits and the Americans condemned it and everybody thought it would be temporary, but then there was an escalation in rhetoric, the kind of, um, the, 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 the judiciary said that, you know, any, any telcos, any telecommunication companies that allow Twitter to still work on their networks would be fined, so, um, and would be prosecuted. And so they shot, they shot, they had to shut Twitter down and, you know, it's been interesting because immediately people turned, thank God for VPN started trending, the hashtag, and um, people turned immediately to VPN to kind of voice their discontent. I think that if we're honest, it has had a dampening effect on the use of, of social media and particularly Twitter in Nigeria. You know, it was in Nigeria by, by sheer um, virtue of its population has always been a very dominant voice on social media and i think the reason why nsars was so um such a, a global became such a global movement is because there's 200 million nigerians and there are also millions of nigerians in the diaspora 200 million nigerians in nigeria but also millions in the diaspora and there there's so many of them they can get attention to the causes that matter to them and unfortunately what the twitter ban has done is you know for a lot of people vpn consumes a lot of data on their mobile phones, data is super expensive here. For a lot of them, it slows down their, uh, their connection uh, and the connection is already pretty poor here. For a lot of them, it, um, it consumes a lot of battery and access to electricity here is patchy. So recharging your phone, you know, isn't always easy to do. And so that has led to, you know, a quietening of that voice on social media. You still have some people in the diaspora in Nigeria who, who use VPN daily and use the app. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's nowhere near as vibrant or as dynamic as it was before the ban, before the ban, sorry. Moving on to a bit of a different motive by the government. Um, there's been some recent counterinsurgency efforts. Um, and as you mentioned before, there has been quite a large surrender of Boko Haram fighters. However, it's also hit the news that Boko Haram has entered into countries like Nigeria, so the neighboring countries. So how um, successful are these counterinsurgency efforts and and what is happening in the regional in the region sorry um with Boko Haram 
Yeah, there's been, you know, different um, by the Nigerian military, different counterinsurgency efforts over the years to try and end Boko Haram, and they've had mixed success. I think one of the earliest successful President Buhari when he was elected in 2015 is that they were able to recover the Nigerian army in the immediate aftermath of President Buhari's election, they were able to recover large waves of territory in the northeast from Boko Haram. And that is what they've always um, used um, to counter the narrative by their detractors that they haven't been able to put an end to Boko Haram, which is what President Buhari had promised before he was elected. They say, well, you know, they might still be active, but they, their, their influence is much reduced. They've been, you know, pushed out to Lake Chad and Sambisa Forest, so to remote areas of, of the Northeast, and they no longer control large waves of the region, which is true. Um, the reality is though, that the influence is such that, you know, a lot of Northeastern Nigeria is hard, particularly rural areas, is hard to access. So, it's good to have pushed them back, but the reality is um, it's still not safe for many people in the Northeast to return to their homes and to start farming again, which is the way that they, they make a living. And until that can happen on a large scale, you're still going to see a lot of hunger and poverty and deprivation in the Northeast of the country. So they, they've been successful in in reducing the area where Boko Haram is active in Nigeria, in Northeastern Nigeria, but the, the attacks on the military carried out by, by ISWAP and Boko Haram and, and some attacks on civilians are still happening. And that means that life isn't back to normal in the Northeast. Um, in terms of um, how the group has spread to other um, countries in the region, it is active, as you say, in um, Niger, in neighboring Niger, in Cameroon. And there, um, the armed forces have kind of come together, of those countries have come together to form a, a joint unit to try and fight um, Boko Haram. They've had, you know, they haven't succeeded in spreading as far into those countries as they have um, in Northeastern Nigeria. Um, I think people are particularly concerned about um, the border between Niger and Northwestern Nigeria, where they feel that those borders are very porous and because of the insecurity caused by kidnapping for ransom. Things like weapons are able to come through. It's an area where traditionally gold um, was mined. They think that some of the proceeds from those gold mines have now been commandeered by criminals and are being used to you know, buy weapons that are coming um, through the border. So you have a, a situation of insecurity um, in the region, but it's still, I think, worse in the northeast of Nigeria. Now, with the death of Abubakar Shekau, the surrender of, of thousands of um, Boko Haram fighters, this is a rare opportunity for the authorities to try and do something to stem the influence of Boko Haram in the northeast. If they're able to convince these young men who've handed themselves over to, you know, to, to stay in civilian life, if they're able to provide them with jobs and a livelihood, if they're able to rehabilitate them, then you might see a reduction of Boko Haram's influence. But already a lot of these men who've handed themselves over say that, you know, it's been a year since they handed themselves over, they can't make a living, um, you know, they, they haven't been taken care of. It's, it's politically very delicate, right, because the government doesn't want to be seen to be soft on former um, extremists, and so they have to be careful how they treat them. But at the same time, if they're not able to convince them to stay in civilian life, they might be tempted to return to um, Sambisa Forest and to Lake Chad where they were active before and return to jihadism just as a way of having 
you know, a way of making the living somewhere where they belong, somewhere where their contributions are appreciated. And we know that Islam, um, the so-called Islamic State Central is investing massively in West Africa at the moment, sending foreign fighters to the region to, to train and bolster um, their forces here. So it's a real kind of battle for the hearts and minds of young West Africans and, and young Nigerians uh, in those regions. And at the moment, the government doesn't seem to have a clear strategy besides rehabilitating these young men. And I say rehabilitating, um, I'm making air quotes because we, we don't have access to the centers. So we don't know how good this rehabilitation process is, you know, how deep it goes. It's, a, it's really important if you're going to stop people from turning, returning to jihadism and extremism, Islamic extremism. I think it's really important um, to do that process well. And at the moment, the Nigerian government isn't being transparent enough to reassure people um, that they are able to, to turn these young men away from the ideology that has been so damaging to the country over the years. You re you did a report um, with the BBC on the role of women in politics. Could you um, give us a bit of a summary on how women fit into the Nigerian political system? The short answer is, um, you know, they don't, unfortunately. So we did this report uh, as part of our coverage of the 2019 elections where, um, where President Mohamedou Buhari was re-elected. And it's because, you know, Nigeria has uh, one of the lowest um, rates of female participation in politics in Africa and the world. Um, and it's a country where women are incredibly influential in society. They own a lot of businesses. They're the head of many households. Um, the head of the World Trade Organization is a Nigerian woman. Um, and, you know, it's not that Nigerian women are not successful in society. So it, it was interesting. We wanted to find out why they weren't taking part in politics, why there were so few female candidates uh, in the 2019 elections, and also why there were so few women in, in positions of power within the government. And I think one of the key problems that women, female candidates stumble against are, well, there, there are a couple of problems. One of them is cultural. Often when a woman wants to run, she is seen by the constituents that she see, she wants to represent as being uh, subservient to them. So she might try and attend town hall meetings or one meet her constituents and she will be told, especially if she's young, that she should be listening, especially if, if it's all the people that are talking to her, she, uh, she should be listening to them. Um, women are, are not necessarily seen, even though, as I said, they, they have influential positions in society, they're not necessarily seen as um, leaders in Nigerian society. So you might have a woman who is the head of a household, who runs the business that feeds everybody, but she's still also expected to run the house. She's still expected to cook for her husband every day and to, and to provide for him. And so culturally, women are still seen as, as kind of subservient in Nigerian society. And that makes it difficult for them to be seen as, as valid political leaders. And then I think the second problem is financial. A lot of money is needed to run for elections in Nigeria. Often, that money is used to buy um, patronage, right? So from a very um, kind of small sphere of influence, you will have a state, each state has a, uh, um, a local, has local government areas, each local government areas have like towns and villages, and each of those towns and villages, you, you gain influence for your candidates, right? So throughout the years, you'll have 
politicians at a local level attending weddings of key stakeholders, traditional chiefs or um, heads of villages. They'll attend weddings, they'll attend funerals. And every time you come to a wedding and a funeral, you bring a bit of drink, you bring a bit of food, you bring some a bit of money for the family. And, and they associate you with those gifts, right? They associate your party, your candidate with those gifts. And that's how you, you gain influence over a, a village, a local government area, a state. You know, you have to build that support. It's very grassroots. And for a lot of women, you know, if you're a woman that has a family, traveling to rural constituencies will be tricky. Get, raising the money that you need will be tricky. A lot of these fundraising meetings with people with money are, are carried out in the middle of the night. They're carried out in people's homes. Female candidates describe feeling uncomfortable being in these meetings with men, these very informal meetings, you know, late at night. She's a married woman. How can she justify leaving her husband in the middle of the night to go and attend some sort of networking, you know, meeting with somebody who's going to give her the money that she needs for her campaign? So there are lots of, of little barriers like that. To, to female participation in politics. And there hasn't really been a concerted strategy, although some very weak lip service has been paid by the government in terms of you know, bringing women in. And the, the Minister of Finance, for instance, is a woman, but you know, she's the exception that proves the rule. Being a woman in politics in Nigeria at the moment is, is tricky and it's, it's difficult. And, and I think that's why, for example, a group like the Feminist Coalition in the NSA protest was unusual right because it was young women that had the money and i think that that's what made them stand out uh, they wanted they said they did it because they wanted to show that female leadership was possible and was beneficial in nigeria but that unfortunately hasn't translated to people trusting women more and even feminist coalition got a lot of backlash on social media from tech bros and other men who kind of believe that, you know, were they really doing all the things that they said they were doing? You know, where, who are these girls? They're very privileged. That's the only reason why they can do those things. Or they only did these things because they wanted publicity. You know, they've been featured in, in global publications like Vogue and Days. That's all they wanted. So even when you have ex successful examples of female le leadership like the Feminist Coalition during NSARS, you have detractors and critics that will try and, and shut them down. And speaking of uh, the Director General of the WTO, she wrote a book with our very own Julia Gillard. So if anyone wants to check that out, it's called Women in Leadership. Um, if you want to hear more about women in politics around the world, it's a great book. But um, we've spoken a lot about young people in Nigeria throughout this, throughout this chat. Um, they obviously play a big role. You did mention that the population is quite young. What does the future look like for Nigeria? And what, does the, what is the role of young people in the future? <laughs> Um, God, I don't. And so the reason I'm laughing and, and kind of sighing is because there are two ways of seeing Nigeria's booming population and youthful population. There's an optimistic way of looking at it, and there's a pessimistic way of looking at it. If you're an optimist, let's start with the pessimist. <laughs> if you're a pessimist, so we can end on a, on a happy note. If you're a pessimist, this population is and this youthful population is a burden. Uh, youthful unemployment, unemployment among the young is, is, is growing. And uh, people believe that things like the NSAS protests, and particularly the violence that followed the NSAS protests are an indication of some of the dangers 
um, that that could pause. Um, a lot of the exiles activists said that the looting and the violence that characterized the end of the protest was state sanctioned or was sanctioned by people who wanted to see the protest tarnished. Um, and you had you know, days where towns and cities around Nigeria were ransacked. Um, and so for them, it's like as, as kind of the, the youthful population continues to grow, and if they're not given gainful employment, you're going to see more and more of this civil unrest and this social unrest. And, and this is a, is a problem for Nigeria. Nigeria is estimated to be, I think, the third most populated country in the world by 2050 after India and China. That's frightening when you think about what that means for unemployment, what that means, what are these young people to do in a country that isn't currently creating jobs at the pace necessary for its rapid population growth? What does that mean for resources that are already stretched? The average Nigerian household still relies on generators for its electricity on an almost daily basis. I'm sitting outside my flat today on my balcony. It's quiet, but usually there would be the hum of the generator at the back providing electricity. So a country that barely has electricity for enough electricity, that can barely provide enough electricity for its population as it stands, what is it going to do when this population further increases? It's frightening. What does that mean for access to healthcare for the average Nigerian? Um, access to healthcare at the moment is incredibly prohibitively expensive. Doctors, Nigerian doctors are some of the most talented medical professionals in the world. They are leaving to go and work abroad because the opportunities for them here and not, um, it's not financially, um, you know, good for them to remain here. You know, what does that mean for access to food? We're seeing shortages of food at the moment. We're seeing inflation, food inflation, the highest in 15 years. So there's a real fear that this, this population increase, if it's not managed well by this government and, and, and the governments that come after it, will really turn into a poison chalice for the country. And then there's the other view that I want to believe in, which is that this, this population boom is gonna be an incredibly good thing for Nigeria, that things like the NSALS movement and the sheer level of ingenuity and dynamism and energy exhibited by young Nigerians during those protests demonstrate how capable they are in running the, this country. And if they're only given the opportunity to lead this country, they would do a fantastic job. If in two weeks, they can provide for a handful of protest sites all of the benefits that Nigerian society lacks, food, they even had toilets, uh, sanitation, security, healthcare. Um, if they can provide all of those things in a two weeks period, how much more could they do over years? You know, the, 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 the the proof will be, I think, partly in the coming 2023 presidential elections. After NSALS, a lot of young people said, okay, well, we've seen what we can do if we come together. We've seen that no matter what our skill set is, PR, law, um, catering, we can come together and be like, okay, I'll contribute this, I'll contribute, you know, I'll do PR for the movement, I'll produce, I'll cook for the protesters, I'll, you know, I'll give legal aid for the protesters. So we've seen that we can do things if we come together. And let's apply that energy to the 2023 elections. Now, um, the 
the issue with that is that and by the time 2023 rocks up, it would have been almost three years since NSARS. And have they, will they be able to maintain that energy and that vim to get young people at the ballot box? I think there's some encouraging signs. The majority of new registrants, I think 75% of people who registered for new voting cards recently when the process was open, were young people. And I, and I think that shows a willingness to participate in the political process that perhaps wasn't there before because a lot of young Nigerians are jaded uh, with the process. I think fielding the right candidates and getting a candidate that young Nigerians can get behind is going to be crucial. Some of the names that we're seeing are politicians who've been around already, former governor of Lagos State. Um, uh, you know, some are even saying that the former president, good luck, Jonathan, might be trying to run again. I don't know. You know, I can't confirm or deny that. That's not something, you know, these are rumors. But at the moment, there hasn't, we haven't seen the emergence of a candidate that young Nigerians can get behind yet. There's, you know, a year and a half or so before the elections happen. So there's still plenty of time for somebody to, to emerge. But I think if young Nigerians are able to vote and get the candidates of their trust uh, of their choice elected in 2023, then that will galvanize them to to do more when it comes to Nigerian society and to contribute more to the political landscape. And then we might see that the future looks rosier for Nigerians because you know young Nigerians are the future of the country. They're incredibly charismatic, ingenious, resourceful in a country where there is no electric, you know, scant access to electricity, they still manage to have one of the most vibrant ecosystems on the continent. You know, we, we talk about tech hubs in Nairobi. It's easy to have a tech hub in Nairobi when, you know, Nairobi relative to Nigeria works quite well. There's electricity, everything's smooth. In Nigeria, that making it happen is it requires, you know, daily amounts of ingenuity and, and stamina. And so young Nigerians certainly have it. And, and that's what keeps me hopeful and optimistic about this country is the sheer amount of just energy and grit they've got. Because if it was me, I'm not Nigerian, I'm from Sierra Leone, you know, if it was me, I would have given up a long time ago, but they continue to show up for their country and it's, it's incredible. Speaking of young people, um, is there something that, you know, a piece of advice or, or some way that young Australians could assist or support Nigeria at the moment? And does Nigeria need or want help us any kind of assistance from the international community i think the key thing that nigerians want is for the international community to go beyond just mere rhetoric when it comes to things like condemning the twitter ban and, and condemning the shooting at the lucky Gate. they want actions right they want um targeted sanctions to politicians that I believe to have contributed to some of these things. Um, they want the West to stop trading with, um, with Nigeria, to, to put their money where their mouth is. Um, Nigeria, as I said, is Africa's biggest economy. So a lot of, of countries, the UK included, have continued to trade with them. The US recently sold them um, some aircrafts um, to, to help in the fight. Uh, against Boko Haram and, and the general insecurity in the country. And for um, a lot of people who are uh, supportive of the NSARS movement and supportive of the complaints of young Nigerians, they felt they saw that as a betrayal. The continued engagement with the West, with Nigeria, is, is, is a problem for them. And I think, so I think what, what a lot of Nigerians might ask for, and, and as I said, I'm not Nigerian myself, but they want the West to show that if it really is against all of these abuses by the government, as it as it said it was in the aftermath of the shooting of the Lekki Tollgate. Um, then put your money where your mouth is. Stop, you know, stop engaging with them. 
gave targeted sanctions to, to, to individuals who are found to have contributed to the problem um, and show young Nigerians that you are, um, that you are behind them. In the spirit of reconciliation, Being There, Seen That acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. The views expressed throughout this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts of Been There, Seen That. We will be having a new guest on every episode with a new topic to learn about. We have an Instagram and you can follow us at Been There, Seen That Podcast. We also have Twitter and our handle is Been Seen Podcast. Next week's episode is on Venezuela. We had a great chat about the history of what happened and what's led to uh, what's happening today, which is economic crises, humanitarian crises, a refugee crisis, lots of things. Yeah.